Hi, this is Past, Present and Future. I'm Russ Hearn from EMDI UK, and today we get a sneak preview into the 2024 National Conference in York and meet one of the main presenters, Femke Banik Mbazi. Femke is an EMDR Europe consultant, originally from the Netherlands, who now lives and works in Uganda. Hi, Femke. Great to have you with us. Thank you, Russ. It's great to be here. Well, it's been a while since we met and we were just reminiscing on how long it has been because you were kind enough to come and do some CPD events for us for the Child and Adolescent Committee a few years back. And we're lucky now to see you at the National Conference this year. We're really looking forward to that and we'll speak about that in a moment. But first, I've got to ask you about your journey into EMDR. How did it all start for you? So EMDR only sort of got to Uganda, uh, where I live, in 2012, and that's when I first um, had my level one training. And I must say, the first time um, I attended the training, I was not very impressed. I thought, well, this is not going to work. <laughs> I work in Africa, and how are we going to do this very individualized sort of protocol type uh, therapy? So um, it sort of took another three years before trainers came back and I think um, tried again and people thought, oh, maybe this could work if we make some adaptations and if we can do this differently. So then I trained in uh, 2015 in uh, level one and level two. And that's sort of uh, when I started practicing EMDR. And thinking about uh, the clients back then, your apprehension about using this strange and weird technique, what was it that changed your mind? When did you realize there might actually be something in this? So I had worked in um, in northern Uganda for quite a long time then and I was using different trauma therapies. And what I often had is that um, especially the male clients didn't really want to talk about what had happened. And of course, most of our other therapies are you know, very narrative and talk based. And one of the trainers gave an example about how she had used um, EMDR by almost not talking, but just using the images and um, yeah, really the processing to, to help this client still process the trauma without her even almost getting to know the details of the trauma. And then that's when I thought, hmm, okay, that's interesting because maybe that's something that could work here where a lot of people don't want to talk about what happened. Um, and that's how I thought, okay, maybe I should try this again. And I did. And that was uh, really, really exciting because I think then I started using it also um, with mostly also with elderly uh, patients, uh, clients that we have at the clinic um, from from different African backgrounds who are not used to talk really about um, life events and trauma at all. And that's when I started seeing um, a lot of progress, especially in those with complex trauma um, that maybe had already been seen by many of my colleagues and um, sometimes were already in treatment with me for a long time. So that's when I started seeing, oh, this is something that can really make a change. And this is actually really exciting. And they were also really excited about it because I think many times these were clients that people said, oh, well, we'll just take medication and this is never going to get better, sort of. So I think that's what made it really interesting and thinking that this is something that could work here. That sounds amazing. Um, I was just thinking that coming from a, a European-based training into this new community, I, I wonder what it was that struck you straight away that made you think, I'm going to have to do things differently here. So I um, I was trained in the Netherlands. Um, I studied anthropology and psychology uh, back then. And my first job was 
to change the psychotherapy services in a in a Dutch mental health care system um, to make sure that they were more culturally appropriate because at the time we had a lot of refugees from Yugoslavia, um, Iran, Iraq, Sierra Leone. So I came in with that idea of, oh, I'm now going to go work in Uganda, um, work with internally displaced people, refugees. So we also need to think about how we can be a bit more creative, perhaps, about um, how we offer therapy services. So I think when I first came here, I came with those ideas, still quite individualized of, well, this is how we're going to work one-on-one. And then um, I started working with youth that came back from the uh, rebel group who had abducted young children to to be soldiers. So they would come back and then they would be uh, put in a what they called a rehabilitation center at the time. And I think um, a lot of them were then sort of told to tell their stories, draw their stories, but there wasn't really a lot of structure around that of why are we doing this? And there was also the time that still people thought that debriefing was a good thing. So you need to talk through everything. Um, and I think that is when I started realizing, well, one, we need a more group approach because we're having hundreds of people coming in um, every day. So we can't do something one-on-one because that doesn't work. And also too, we need to think of something that works for these children and youth that are coming back that have um, had really horrible experiences, but also often don't have the language to explain it. So I think the drawings was a good thing. Uh, The debriefing, obviously, uh, less so, as we know now. And I think that's when I started thinking a lot more about what what would it then look like and how can we do that if we are dealing with such um, large groups of people that need trauma therapy. That sounds really hard, working with those young people who've been abducted and then forced into warfare, I guess. Yes, there must have been some really horrible stories for you to hear. And I was thinking as you were speaking that it, it seems as though the culture is based on stories, but also there's some difficulty in actually talking about those stories. Yes, I think it's very uh, much story-based, but it's often also story-based in relation to your family and your community. So if you were abducted or you were um, told to, for example, um, kill your yeah, either family or community members, it was very hard to then come back with that story because obviously you didn't fit in that community anymore and, and often people didn't want to see you because they would be very angry with you. So I think that the story telling um, changed a lot to well, we can't do individual ones. So how do we now, how does our story fit in our community and how can we then process what we have, what has happened to us? I think um, also in other therapies, um, not only with, with war affected children and youth, we've seen that the storytelling is also often a thing of a way of healing, of saying, well, how can we narrate this differently? How can we make sense of it? But sometimes the traumatic experiences are obviously so horrible and complex um, that it's very hard to um, to do that in a story. So I think often people prefer in the therapy sessions to say, well, we still use the story as a healing process, but we we don't really want to give the details of that story of all the bad that happened, but rather about what the solution was. So I think that is where EMDR came in um, for me as well. This could be a tool, a way of bridging that gap and trying to then still get to obviously a healing journey, but um, a more maybe mixed method one um, in therapy. So did you feel that that when you first started using EMDR in that community, that you had to sell it in a certain way that you had to change the language because I mean it's a it's a very European individualistic based therapy and you're using it in a collectivist community. Yes, I think when I started using it, I thought 
especially the eye movement was really hard because in my first training, it was all about eye movements. We're not taught as much about the different types of stimulation uh, yet. And I think that was sometimes hard and sometimes it was interesting because people liked it. So it was often associated with witchcraft or someone who's going to sort of do this magical thing and then fix people's brains. So if people were open to that, they were quite happy for for me to do that. Um, And if they were not, they thought it was very scary and we were doing something really weird and they wouldn't want to come back. So I think Mm -hmm. that's when we started realizing we have to... think about the mode uh, but we also have to think about how to explain it and I think that's when me as well as uh, other colleagues who are trained really started thinking about adapting yeah for example the, the explanation of how EMDR works can you use a different metaphor of saying well how do you um, yeah, well, how does even the other work and how does it heal? Because people don't really have that sense of well, how does the brain work and what is trauma? Because there's also no language often for even the word trauma or even mental health in many of the local languages. So that's, I think, when we started thinking we need to we need to change our language to be able to, to sell it and to see um, how it can work for our clients. That's so important. And I was just thinking that's really what your talk is about in York this year, adaptations, how to make EMDR more culturally appropriate. Can you give us just a little taster of what you'll be talking about? Yeah, so I think um, in York, what I'd really like to do together with, with participants is thinking about cultural competence, which I think for for every therapist, of course, is is key to to feel comfortable to feel I can try this I know many of us feel a bit scared if we have someone from a culture we don't know and wonder how we're going to do this or how we're going to adapt Uh, so I think first um, is to feel a little bit more comfortable with different uh, cultures different perspectives on mental health and then uh, looking at how we've made cultural adaptations um, in the EMDR protocol so I will talk about the different phases and how we've done that I think um one of the key ones for, for me is really to look at um, resources. What resources um, can people access in their context? What Which ones are appropriate? The other one is really about changing from the individual to the more we or plural perspective. Sometimes that means uh, family members might come into the session. Other times it also means that we don't use a cognition that starts with I, but it starts maybe with me. Uh, or we or my community or my family, um, which is quite a different uh, approach. And I think the other bits is also often about, well, if we are using different types of stimulation, what works, um, what are people comfortable with, um, what can you explore? Um, And I will give some examples as well about it of how you can also integrate maybe cultural Aspects. Um, we have a lot of dance here, for example, um, in, in the culture movement uh, that can also be included um, in the therapy. So those are a few things I'll be talking about. And I think mostly it's also really about practicing and trying out uh, things together so that you also feel of actually um, yeah, done some, some exercise and I go home with some tools that I can I can try out. So I hope it will be a good mix of theory and practice. That sounds amazing. And I was just thinking as you were talking about the difficulties of working with clients from a different culture who may have a different language. And you said that some words don't actually translate well across languages. And I was just remembering my work um, with groups and having a similar problem. When you're working with translators, then what do you do? Have you got any tips for working with translators or interpreters? So I, I do work with translators. Um 
try to minimize it as much as possible. So we'll always try and have people trained um, in the language um, when we can and have then our colleagues do it uh, in the language that the person speaks. If that's not possible, it's really key, I think, first is to select a translator that can work in the setting. I think many times translators are assigned by a company or an organization um, and they need a bit more information. They need to know where the client is from, what their background is to make sure that the client can feel comfortable with their dialect with their family background um, making sure that this is for example um, if it's from a war zone not someone um, that was on the other side of the of the conflict and then when you start working with them I think it's really important to brief the translator about how EMDR works um, and what what it looks like when you have a session what you want them to do what you don't want them to do and also I think uh, really help them afterwards um, because they can of course also be triggered uh, during your session uh, when they're just um, translating because of their own background and things that might have come up uh, from the client so I think there's a sort of a few basic things where we will talk a bit more maybe in the at the conference about that and also um, think of some case studies that we can use to to practice because I think I have had really good experiences with some translators and also some really bad ones. So I think yeah, it's it doesn't always go um, go the way we expect. I think so. It's also about building your group of um, translators if you can that you trust that that can work with you that can work with your group of clients, especially if you have a larger group of clients. I imagine some people maybe in the UK are having a lot of people now from Ukraine or perhaps from still also from Afghanistan and Syria. So if you have a translator that speaks the language that works well, then yeah, continuing with them, um, of course, is, is often helpful if they can. Excellent. And I was wondering, there may be some people that might be thinking, well, adaptations, if we're talking about adapting things, then we're maybe not doing proper EMDR, whatever that might be. And I wonder how you would address that. What would you say to people who are thinking like that? Yeah, so I think this is something with, I think is with all therapies and I think especially with EMDR because it's so protocol based. I think it's not about following the protocol to the dot to make, to have an impact. I think it's about finding that attunement, that sort of relationship with your client, whereby you feel they are uh, processing, they are something is changing. And if you are not following the protocol exactly, or you've forgotten something, or you have changed something around because you weren't quite sure what to do in, in that situation, I think um, that that's really okay, because it's, it's about... I think pushing your own boundaries in that way of saying, well, maybe I don't do it right, or maybe I haven't uh, followed the protocol as, as I was trained. But it seems, um, yeah, my client is feeling uh, some relief, or when I do the SUDs in whichever way you measure it, um, it I do see that there's a change um, at the end of the session. So I think it's really trying to practice a bit with that. Um, and we will do that also in York and trying to feel how can I how can I let go somehow a bit of um yeah of, of the very strict way of following the protocol? I think also people often feel that they can't do without the protocol, but if you've done the MDR for quite a while, you probably realize um you know all the sentences and the protocol by heart. So it sort of automatically flows. And I think that's the same when you try to make adaptations. It's not anymore about knowing it by heart or just reciting it. It's just about knowing that, oh, this is in the right place. And the more you practice that, the more, um, yeah, the easier that gets, I think. 
when you were speaking there, my mind was wandering and I was just thinking about the film Apollo 13, when the scientists have to come together to make a, a square air filter fit into a round hole. And I was thinking that's that's really what you're talking about, this idea of adaptation, how to be creative. We realise we've got this amazing therapy that will work, but sometimes we have to think about how do we get our square peg into this round hole? And it sounds like that would be something you'll really be covering well at the conference. So looking forward to that. What about the future then? Do you have any plans in terms of taking EMDR forward, particularly if we're thinking about the community that you're working with? So I think we have had quite a lot of um, changes the last few years because we started EMDR Africa, which has been a great development. So lots more um, African countries are coming together and also thinking a lot more about training and uh, supervision. And I think that is something that I would really like to see over the coming years to obviously have more people trained, but also have people trained uh, by trainers on the African continent. Of course, as with many of the therapies, we've often had uh, that people would come from out and that's been very helpful in teaching the protocol. But I think sometimes it also meant that we didn't make the adaptations because obviously you can't expect someone uh, to know the culture if you just fly in to give a training. So I think we've started with that. We're doing like co um, having a co-training and always trying to do it together with someone in the country. And then hopefully in yeah the next five or 10 years, we would have trainers um, within the continent to do that. I think the other thing that I think um, is something that I would really like to see is more research about um, not just the adaptations, but also the effectiveness um, and use of EMDR, um, especially in group settings, because we have such large population and very few um, people working in mental health. So I think the group protocols that we've used here, what I've seen are very effective, but we don't really have a lot of um, research data on it. So I think that's something that I would also really like to work on with my colleagues. And we have a research committee at EMD Africa that is looking at that. I'm excited about that. Well, we can't wait to hear more about that and, of course, more from you at the conference in York this year on the 15th and 16th of March. We look forward to seeing you then, but thank you so much for your time, Femke. It's been an absolute pleasure to get this sneak preview into the things that you're going to be talking about at the conference, but also to hear more about you and your journey in the EMDR community. So thank you so much. Thank you. I'm looking forward. Exciting to meeting you on York. Past, Present and Future is a Laura Beach production for EMDR UK. 